Caribbean people. The world knows that we're vibrant, creative, athletic, but innovators? Are we people who can create companies and brands that can take the world by storm? Well, I believe the answer is yes. And if you do too, then Uptick is a show for you. We'll meet entrepreneurs, innovators, and leaders who are building a new generation of Caribbean companies and brands. We'll learn from their ups, downs, and overall experiences. I'm your host, Chike Farrow. Um, well, welcome to uh, another episode of the Uptick podcast, where we feature Caribbean innovators live. And, you know, in this season, we continue to explore themes around social entrepreneurship and mission-driven innovation. And I'm really excited to welcome Douglas Gordon today. Um, as you will hear, uh, Douglas has done a range of super interesting things. Um, he's doing some really interesting things now. Um, so we'll get into that, his backstory, how we got into what he's uh, doing now. But I think one of the other things that, you know, is really cool and we were talking about, um, you know, even before we started this, this podcast today is just the importance of mission importance of you know really kind of like helping people you know kind of connect to, to any kind of learning that they could take on their own innovation or entrepreneurship journey so Douglas it's a pleasure to have you great to great to chat with you today thank you for having me yeah so so one of the things that's like super interesting about you is that you know you've um, you know you're from the Caribbean but you've you know lived all over the place and you've done all sorts of interesting things um, but, you know, I like to sometimes start at the beginning. Uh, sometimes we jump straight into what you're doing now. But today, I think it's, it's, it's super interesting to start at the beginning. So maybe just tell our listeners where you grew up, um, you know, and where your sort of formative years in, in the Caribbean were and, um, and how that might have kind of connected to, um, you know, what you've gone on to do entrepreneurially. Um, well, I was born in New York, um, but back in Trinidad, you know, within a few months, if you will. And uh, I, I left Trinidad when I was just about 10 to go to school in England. My mom moved. And I was in England for a number of years through, um, did uh, middle school there and then started grammar school. And then we relocated to New York. So I finished high school in New York, 10th, 11th, 12th grade. Then I went to university in Philadelphia. Then I moved to Atlanta. And then I moved back to Trinidad in uh, 1999. And um, then in about 20, 2005, 2006, I moved to Jamaica. Wow. So I've, yeah. uh, I've moved around a little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I usually tell people my, my, my story is a little bit of a yo-yo story, and you, you, you have that too, moving around and so on. But, you know, one of the things that's actually, you know, pretty cool about that is that you actually are able to, to generally absorb different things from different experiences, and they all kind of, you know, help to shape who you are. So I'm kind of curious with, with that experience of, you know, shifting from Trinidad to, 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 you know, to England and the U S what were some of the things that, you know, particularly at that age and stage, right. What were some of the things that, that, that struck you, you know, either kind of like positive or maybe even negative as a, as a, as someone who, you know, sort of started off growing up in the Caribbean, what were some of the things that like really struck you as you moved to each of those destinations? Maybe we'd start with the UK and then, um, the U S you know, I'm always interested in that, in that dynamic and, you know, what you learned about yourself and, and, uh, what, what, what experiences stood out. Well, one of the first things I learned about myself when I moved to the UK was that, um, you know, that I was black. Because before that, I was Douglas. But now I just, now it seemed to be more important that I was black. Um, you know, my mother had put a huge premium on education. 
And, um, you know, she's a very, very astute woman, very hardworking, very industrious and determined. And so, you know, she had some business success in Trinidad between when, you know, she and my father separated and before we moved. And so she faced a little bit of a conundrum. You know, she said, look, I want the best education for my children. It's very important to me. And then she also arrived at the, at the, the realization that if she put all her money, you know, into education, then she'd have really educated children. But what if the children, you know, didn't take care of her, right? <laughs> so, so her workaround or backup plan was she, she, she realized that in a lot of um, neighborhoods, you know, the sort of quote unquote best neighborhoods also had the best public um, education. But in, with that formula, she would own the real estate, of course. So she'd have her asset and she'd get her kids, you know, the best possible education. So it was, you know, a proverbial win-win. So, you know, I ended up in these environments that were, um, you know, lovely, lovely neighborhoods in both the UK as well as in, in New York. Um, excellent educational systems. But yeah, you know, we were the only black people in, in the neighborhood, so to speak. And so I think one of the biggest lessons I learned in England, and I think it's something that is, is misunderstood even in the U.S., is there's a massive difference between prejudice and racism, you know, and a lot of times we paint the brush of people who are really just prejudicial or have prejudicial concepts with the racism brush, you know, and there's a massive difference. And, you know, as, as, as the minority community, it's important that we understand that most of it is a, is a lack of exposure. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some people with some, some half-baked ideas um, who are really dead set in this idea that they're better than other people, which you know, that's a whole different topic, whole different conversation, It's as, 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 as ridiculous as it is. But fundamentally, in terms of navigating the landscape, if you have an appreciation that people are just not exposed, then, you know, you at least give yourself the mental, the mental bandwidth to figure out how to navigate through the challenges as distinct from they're all against me kind of thing. Right. Um, and, that's, and that's really what I found. You know, I always say England was an experience that, I wouldn't trade for I wouldn't trade for a million dollars, you know, um, but I wouldn't want to relive it. And in, in large measure, because, you know, it, it what it's very good at is these very sort of strict rules and regulations. And, and you know, it, 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 there's a, a lot of structure in the tradition, which I think are very good for a young person. Having said that, you know, you have to find ways to navigate the system. I'll never forget, you know, in school, I was a very I played a lot of football. And, you know, I was a little bit of a hothead at the time. You know, I was very, very passionate about what I did. You know, I was always trying to win. And invariably, I'd end up in these scenarios where, you know, if if my team won or I made a, a huge contribution to the victory, you know, it turned on this, it turned. You know, the people who are just, I was competing against, you know, even Steven, it now became that I was a black guy. You know, and that led them to be able to say what they wanted or call me whatever they wanted. And back in those days, you know, you call me a name. My response was to to, to react, retaliate. You know, not with words, but with 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 physical physicality. Yeah. And in England, you know, they have very simple rules. You know, who hit who first? You know, it's as simple as that. And I'll never forget in grammar school. You know, I, I was also fortunate because I think you know a lot of the teachers and 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 so forth. As much as they were all white, they recognized. You know, in grammar school, for example, I was one, the only black boy out of 1,200 boys wow. in grammar school, you know, and they weren't used to, you know, they just weren't used to black people qualifying to get to go to that school, right? Now, be that as it may, 
you had the rules. And so I'll never forget, I had to learn because I had a headmaster who the rules were the rules, but at the same token, he had enough empathy not to come down with the full sort of, you know, the, the full law of the land, if you will. Mm-hmm. When I, when I, you know, was intransient by virtue of, of responding in a way that I shouldn't. And I'll never forget one day my mother said to me, she said, son, you know, you, you, you got to find another way. You know, she didn't tell me what the way is. She didn't come into school and argue her, my case for me. She just said, son, you have to find another way. And, you know, I realized that the rule was who hit who first. And in that moment, I had to force myself to take a mindset that said, well, if I choose not to let your words affect me, then that's my choice. I now have the power. And so in that moment, you know, how it manifested the first time was, you know, in the locker room and the changing room, whatever they call it there, you know, again, the same little name calling. I said nothing. It got a little bit louder. Nothing. No reaction from me. I just continued doing until one of the guys, the main protagonist, tapped my shoulder. Hey, I'm talking to you. But with that, I knocked his lights out. Right. But what, what I appreciate and respect about England is when the question came, who hit who first? Right. It wasn't just for me to argue. There was enough, there was enough integrity and character that even though all those guys were laughing at the fact that, you know, I would get riled up because that's, that's the, that's the victory, right? Let me show you how easily I can get this dude riled up, whether or not I'm going to get hit in the face, kicked in the head or, or whatever I might quote unquote lose. I've actually won because I set the ground rules for what victory looks like without even having a part of the conversation. And so that's where I really learned that words have the power that we give them. No no more, no less. And And so everything changed in that moment is as far as that ability to allow racial words and epithets and whatever to impact me versus me having the control to decide, uh aha, that's enough. And now I'm going to come back with a response or I'm going to ignore you. But I have the power. I think there's a pivotal learning for me at that juncture. I was very young, but it it did a lot for me as I got older. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting because, I mean, as I as I listen to that and you kind of talk about, you know, yeah, like my mind is tuning as well, because I'm thinking about, as you said, the impact of words. I'm thinking about adaptation which in sort of the modern world you know a lot of times we talk about you know topics of you know innovation and building and businesses but in the modern world where you're you're interacting with and competing with the world adaptation is super important so i kind of like you know was intrigued by that and then there was another thing you talked about which is mindset um you know and and that's something that i talk about with you know my teams and and so on in 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 the caribbean all the time, right? I want them to read growth mindset and I want them to understand that you are in way more control than you realize of how you react, how you how you adapt to situations and whether you take the positive side or the negative side and how you how you kind of operate within that construct, which is something that most people have to find their way to. Um, you know, you don't get taught it in school per se. So yeah, so there are some really interesting takeaways that that you mentioned there. So, okay, so so that's super cool. So then how, how did that juxtapose as you then moved to the US and spent time in the US? Were there, were there you know, sort of different takeaways that you had and sort of a different, now dropped into, into a different environment that, that you feel like also had connections to how you then, you know, evolved as a person or in your career? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, so when I moved to the when I moved to the states, um, a, a town called Scarsdale in New York, which is well known for its you know it, 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 as a, as a town and its education and so forth. But again, it was the same thing. You know, there's four black children in the whole junior and high school. Um, two were twins, and the other one was my sister. Right. So, um, you know, but that was the environment. And but what was different for me is now they had more Asians, and it was boys and, and you know male and female. So it almost seemed like, you know, a cosmopolitan environment to some degree relative to what I was coming out of. And so, you know, it was easier to navigate. But what I, pref- what I, what I respect about the U.S. is people to me are more, you know, we can, it's just more honest. It's, you know, especially in New York, you know, there'll be people who just don't want to deal with you back in those days because you're black, but you know it. It's not like in England where it felt more like, you know, everybody's polite and nice, but then you realize that, that that person that you thought was your friend or your colleague or or understood where you're coming from, blah blah blah, they had no interest in you because they were absolutely set against having anything to do with you because of how you looked. So you know some of those learnings were just they helped to toughen you up. But you know for me, what was important as a as a foundation, where my parents were always very much about accountability. You know they you know people call it tough love and it is in some ways, but it always became what did you do to get into that situation and what are you going to do to get out of it? You know, it wasn't like, that's so unfair, son. Let me come in and take care of that for you. Yes, it's unfair, but what are you going to do about it? You know, that was really more more the landscape for me. So it was, again, coming into this environment and figuring out how to navigate in that environment. And I think that's, when you talk about adaptability, that's that's the essence of what life is. It's going into space and figuring out what is the outcome that will serve me and what's the best way for me to behave within this circumstance to get what I want, you know? And, and, and I see people feeling like, you know, we have this, this, this need or, 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 or I don't know what it is, but, you know, I see sometimes as, 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 as black people, you know, folks come in and they want to be however they want to be within a certain environment. And it sometimes attracts attention. And I'm not saying anybody should be less than they want to be. I'm saying we must be focused on what we want out of a given situation, you know, and then and then we can then be ourselves to the extent to which the behavior within that context will serve our outcome. And so for me, it's allowed me over time to go into environments and be completely comfortable, whether there are more black people there, all black people there, no black people there. I'm very, very versatile and comfortable. And I think that is so important that we have that sense of self and that sense of belonging, you know, in, into these environments. So I have nothing to prove. I don't need to be louder than the next person. If somebody's talking crap that I know better facts on, I don't need to correct them if that doesn't serve me in that environment. If it makes it more important for them to think that I'm not as smart as they are, no problem, right? I'm not going to dumb down who I am, but I don't necessarily need to speak up and, and, and get up into someone's face. And I think those are the things that matter because what I've also found, GK, in all of this is sometimes when you're quiet and people underestimate you and then you, they ask you about a topic and then they realize that they've invited you into the conversation, but you know a far lot more than the people who've been dominating the conversation. You know what you get out of that, most importantly, is a degree of respect yes. and you get a degree of credibility because you weren't trying to be louder than the next person when nobody was actually 
you know, pursuing the conversation or under, trying to understand the facts. Now that they are, you can hold your own. And it, it, it you know, it, it really is a very powerful thing I've found over time to where people can walk away and say, wow, you know, that guy really impressed me or what have you, because you are comfortable in your space. You're okay with your silence. You're okay with somebody not knowing because the next time around, when you do have that opportunity, you know, that same person who saw you in that first setting is like, dude, if you knew all of that, why didn't you say it the first time? Because it didn't serve me. That wasn't yeah. an environment that wasn't that I want to get an argument over. You know, it, it, it just wasn't that important. Sure. If it is important, be sure I'm going to put my flag in the ground and hold my own. But I'm not going to make the unimportant important just because I want you to know who I am. Yeah. And those are some things I learned. No, I think that's super cool because there is something to and, you know, and it, and it, and it sometimes comes with, you know, a little bit of, uh, of experience as well that, you know, the, the, the emphasis that you can have sometimes when you're younger, when you're starting out to, to prove something or prove yourself um, that can kind of, you know, I think I've talked about this with a lot of other entrepreneurs and leaders over time. But, you know, yeah, it, 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 it shifts over time and you realize, yeah, you know what? No, I don't need to approach it that way to achieve certain goals. So I think that's really powerful. And I think we're going to actually come back to that as we go along. So because you, you know, you today are uh, doing a bunch of different things. You're CEO of Silo Wellness, um, which is doing some, some really interesting things. Um, but you've done a lot of other entrepreneurial things along the way. But I know you, st so you studied economics back in the day, right? Um, you lived in Jamaica. Um, you know, you've lived in Jamaica sort of multiple times kind of throughout the journey. And then you got into, um, you know, working. I think you worked at sort of Nations Bank, the predecessor to Bank of America, kind of out of sort of like out of university um, and then some other companies within Trinidad before starting your own stuff. So I want you to tell, tell, tell us a little bit more about sort of that journey into entrepreneurship, because it, it certainly sounds like you had, you know, between the experiences that you had, you know, the influences of your parents, you know, you had lots of sort of different influences, but I'm curious, I'm always curious about sort of that aspect of the origin story. What, what are some of the things that led you to take your first steps into entrepreneurship? Um, you know, I, my, my first venture, if you want to call it that, I, I think I must have been 10 or 11, I don't remember, but I was delivering my paper out in, uh, in England. And that was basically motivated by, you know, number one, I wanted to earn my own money. I wanted to be able to buy my own things, you know. Um, and my first purchase was my little Walkman, <laughs> the Sony Walkman. But, you know, from there, I always had, thankfully for me, the, the real life examples of hard work and application from my parents. Right. So I was never afraid of hard work. You know, um, the, the worst word you could use in the house growing up with my mother was bored. You know, board was a recipe for a bunch of stuff that she would just conjure up in like milliseconds and you'd be cleaning silver and you're like, how, how am I so stupid as to use a word like that again? Right. But, you know, so I had that embedded in me, that, that activity, that desire in my own self to be productive, you know, to, to if there was more time, what else could I do? You know, and that's just really how I looked at it. And so. You know, when I left all through my all through my experiences, I worked, you know, when I was in New York, I worked at Pottery Barn, like wrapping stuff and sales and all that good stuff. Um, so that was never a thing for me. But I think I think really reading, you know, being exposed to my parents, you know, my mom started her nursing home on her own. 
um, in very challenging circumstances and did you know exceptionally well within the short span. But I didn't even have a sense of what she really accomplished until much later when I started my own business. And you're like, holy smokes, you know, how did little old mom do all of that in such a short amount of time without this resource, that resource, this expertise, et cetera. And so having had that as a baseline, which I think, you know, inform your fundamentals, um, a lot of it, it comes from reading. You know, I think whatever my inherent, you know, inclinations toward entrepreneurship or business or, or what have you, most a lot of it was in was fueled by reading. You know, I read some great you know on, um, entrepreneurial biographies, and I used to consume magazines like a like a beast. You know, I used to think that you know Business Week is is two bucks back in the eighties, right? Now I think it's ten dollars, but you know it's it's two dollars. And if you get one article out of that whole two dollars, you you sound like a genius. You know, the the information it gives you in the right context, you know, really helps to amplify your knowledge. And Absolutely. so, yeah. you know, it, it's really like having that that hotbed of information and really sort of this this, you know, this this curiosity of people who created things. You know, I always felt that it was mm -hmm. such a one. Who were some of the ones that stood out for you at that time? Uh, back in the day, you know, Richard Branson, you know, Phil Knight mm -hmm. from Nike, um, Carl Icahn, Mike Milken. You know, those I, that, I was I used to follow a lot the the financial markets in New York, so. You know, I'd read about Ivan Bosky and all these different, like a lot of corporate raiders, by the way, back in the 80s, you know. Yeah. But also like <laughs> Reginald <Benjamin laughs> Lewis from TLC Beatrice and what he accomplished, you know, back then as a, as a, as a black man. Um, you know, these were the things that I read about and, and was able to sort of, it just fueled a fire in me to say, listen, you know, I think this journey of life has to be about what you create. It has to be about a legacy that says, you know, I've. I, I did something that no one thought I could do, or it created this lasting benefit. And that had huge appeal to me in, in ways that I recognize now that I didn't, that didn't really inform in that same manner when I was younger, but now I see it for what it was. Mm -hmm. It was this burning passion yeah. and desire to, to create something, to build something, um, and really feel that you could grasp all these, you know, all your potential. You know, you know, I feel very blessed, I'll tell you, like, as, as, a, as a human being on this planet, you know, there are a lot of things that, that came to me as gifts. And in some ways, I have carried them for most of my life as burdens, believe it or not, because I always felt like I was given so much. So I have to work harder. I have to do more. I have to make, right. I have to realize, you know, the, the potential from these gifts. And, you know, that, that can be motivating but it can also be somewhat destructive um because you're not able sure. to stop and think how do i continue to grow as an individual you're always thinking i i need to do more i need to accomplish more and you know if you don't sometimes stop and appreciate what you have you know your next iteration is not going to build on it as much as it is going to be just starting in parallel or below and it's very important to have that sort of yeah. mindset of gratitude and and so forth so those are some of the things that inform me and then you know, I had a wonderful um, experience at Nations Bank. You know, uh, I had a I had a, a great job, and um, you know, even got to a place where it was a there was a program. You know, you do this for X amount of years, and then you get to that. And we went through this program, and you know, I was a top performer in the program, and you know, I was underwriting in that at that time credits that much more senior individuals were giving me to underwrite, or the bank was asking me to underwrite. And, um, you know, I just was like, okay, well, this is awesome, but I'm now way past 
what my role is supposed to be. So what's next? And the bank said, well, right. you know, cool yourself. You know, you've done a great job here and what you're doing is fantastic, but just relax. You know, you're going to do this for another couple of years. And then da, da, da. And I was like, well, no, 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 that's not, that's, that doesn't work for me, you know, because I had had yeah. a, a very interesting conversation. The, the, the EVP who actually hired me, I met him on a plane when I was going up to New York one time. I had a, I had a side job in New York with a, an investment banker. So I'd fly up to New York on a project on the weekends, um, you know, twice a month or so. And I met him on a plane and he was like, wow, okay, come, come, come into our division, which I did. But I said, if I'm not ready for the next step when I'm supposed to be there, then don't put me there. Okay. But if I'm ready for the next step before I'm supposed to be there, then I don't expect to be held back. And if right. that, works for, you, that works for me, you know, and so I had come to that point where I was like, well, hold on a minute. These guys are telling me I just need to stick around for another 18 months treading water because, and that's not going to work for me. So I attended my resignation and, you know, the bank did something that they don't typically do. And I'm not saying this to show off. I'm really saying it because I feel that if you're strong in your convictions, um, you know, things will work out. And, you know, they didn't, they ripped up my resignation, cut a long story short and created a new position for me. Um, and that allowed me, that's why I actually did some work in Seattle as well. You know, I ended up doing some work in Florida and, and kind of moving around a bit, but got to a point with that probably about after 18 months in that role where they gave me a, a really great offer, um, for my next year's contract or so forth. And I was like, you know, if I take that job, I'll never leave. Right. If I take that job, mm. I'm now on a sort of like income earning trajectory. I'll never leave. And I've always had this desire to go back to Trinidad, you know, with all that moving around when I was younger, the only constant in my life was, um, well, I won't say the address right now, but my father's home in Glencoe. That was the only constant. There were all these homes, all these schools, um, and not because of anything more than the age with which I landed in some of these countries. You know, when I landed in, in right. England, it was, you know, two years of middle school. And then, then I went to grammar school. And then when I got to New York, I was, a, I was coming in as a sophomore. You know, the only school that I have started and ended with the class, well, sorry, the first school I've started and ended with the class was university, right? You know, how many people mm -hmm. really say that? I mean, you, you, you let it sink yeah, in. That's right. you know? It's kind of ridiculous, yeah. remarkable. But, you know, that, you know, that sort of freedom, and it comes with a cost, but that sort of freedom and that sort of, you know, self-reliance on being able to meet people, um, understand people, get along with people and navigate and so forth, you know, it fit with my personality. So mm -hmm. I started a side, a, a side business when I was at the bank, um, sourcing stuff for companies in Trinidad. So I called it GBI sourcing. And, um, you know, I just went back, I decided at that point that I would, you know, I would leave the bank and leave Atlanta go back to Trinidad and, and really make a go of, you know, the GBI sourcing. And that's what I did. So from that point now forward, I've, I've, I've always been sort of my own quote unquote boss, um, have it running my own entities, um, except now it's silo, which I was brought in as the CEO. So, uh, yeah, but, but that's where that initial, um, long answer, but that's where that initial sort of mindset. Came from. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, I think one of the things about, you know, becoming entrepreneurial 
whether you're doing one thing or, or, or a series of things as you've done, is that it's usually a baptism of fire. You're usually, you know, you know, there, there are very few things that can prepare you for, you know, being an entrepreneur and, and kind of having to, to cross so many different areas of capability kind of simultaneously. And, and it can trip up a lot of people, right? Because it, 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 it's, it's, it's pretty overwhelming. Um, and of course, as you do successive ones, you can become more and more comfortable. So I'm curious about some of the missteps, you know, when you look back um, and the things that you that you really learned a lot from um, as you sort of started out in the entrepreneurial year. I would love you to kind of share a couple of things that that you were then able to kind of, okay, take something from that and move move on to the next experience and be better for it. Um, I think... You know, the importance of having a properly resourced team is very important. And when I say that, I mean, you know, that doesn't mean you have to be able on day one to go out and hire a CFO and, a, you know, a treasurer and this and that. It means that you have within your network or access to people with that expertise who are willing to help you. You know, I think it's also very important to have a really clear sight on what success looks like for you in the business. You know, a lot of people jump into it, my, me included, I think, initially, with this sense of, oh, I can do this and I can build a business, right? But, but what is that long-term definition of success for you in that business? Because, you know, the biggest mistake you can make, I think, is to be so married to the business that you can't see what a successful end looks like. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be something you sell. It could be something that you, you know, you transition to the next line of management. You know, there's a lot of different permutations there. But without a clear sense of what success looks like, I think too many people end up sometimes not taking sufficient risk in their business or sometimes take taking massive gambles at the wrong time. You know, and it's just because you don't know what you're trying to accomplish. You just know opportunity. And it's, it's happened to me, you know, I was, I was telling uh, someone a couple of days ago when they asked me a similar question, you know, what was your, what, you know, what were your biggest, one of your biggest sort of, um, I think they phrase it as failures, but, you know, I don't really use that word so much. I use more like learnings. And this was a very, very, yeah. very, very rich learning for me. Right? <laughs> um, you can decode that. But <laughs> in that, you know, I had this massive order. This is with my, my distribution company, which is what GBI was. This massive order, you know, big ticket, you know, the, the margin on it was, was now going to give us the kind of working capital to sort of, you know, move past, you know, hunting payroll every month that, you know, all those kinds of things, some breathing room finally. And, um, you know, went out, was able to source some purchase order financing for it, you know, got a loan um, from a, a family family friend and got the order in, did all the drama with customs to get it in, blah, blah, blah delivered the goods, the guy's check bounced, right? And, you know, you went from, finally, I'm going to hit it to like, holy, sh you know, what do I do now? Because now, I'm going from this. Yeah. Now, now I'm out all these costs of like, you know, making this happen, the time, the distraction, because, you know, other opportunities have been sort of shunted to the side while you focus on this, you know, quote unquote, big kahuna. And now I owe all this money. You know, now I have to figure out, do I spend what I have on a lawyer to chase this guy? Do I, you know, what do I do? And how do I get my money back? You know, how do I get this, this loan repaid? And 
you know, is a huge learning in that it was a gamble. You know, I thought I was taking, making, I thought I was being resourceful in finding a way to facilitate this order and not recognizing the magnitude of the gamble that I was taking because we did not have the capacity to absorb anything going other than perfectly smooth with that transaction. And, you know, those are the things where I'm not saying don't take, don't take calculated risks. I'm not saying that at all. You're not going to succeed, in my opinion, if you're not taking a series of calculated risks. But I am saying, you know, it's only when you sort of really fall down, recognizing that the, the you know, you think you might fall back to the ground, but now you found out that you fell into a hole. <laughs> and, you know, now you got to get out the hole, right? And it's just, it's just for people to have their eyes open that if this goes sideways, I'm not landing on the ground, I'm landing in a hole. Okay. And once I know that, then I can make that decision. But if I think I'm landing on the ground and I end up in a hole, now I have a different set of circumstances. It's not just a disappointment of taking that risk that it didn't work out, but it's now, how do I just get out of this hole back to a point where I can be disappointed? Because now I don't have the capacity to be yeah. disappointed. I need to find answers. Um, but that, 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 I think, has been, you know, a, a big part of um, that's a sort of my journey. There's tons of experience, tons of tons of stories like that that I've had. Um, but always it's with that. I think that's I think that's what some of us miss in the beginning is really having that big sense of what success looks like. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because. You know, one of the things that actually is really super cool and really consistent is that across all of the Uptick podcast conversations I've had, almost to a person, they always say some variation of what you said, which I love, which is that, you know, I don't really see it as failures. I see them as things to learn from and kind of move on. And I think that's a super important thing because, you know, one of the things and, you know, we, we this kind of came up a little bit in sort of the, the, the pre-brief is that, you know, you talked about the U.S. and one of the things that I respect about the U.S. is just the level of tolerance for risk and for for taking a chance and being willing to say, yeah, you know, I failed at three businesses and then you know the fourth one, you know, I became a bit a billionaire and and that's and that that's cool. It's celebrated and um, you know, and then you talked about the the emphasis placed on um, education in you know in in your own life and that's pretty a pretty common theme for for many people in the Caribbean. Um, and we don't necessarily always get that push to try and it's okay to bump your head, come back again, can you come back stronger? So so there's some really interesting things there and it, and, and I like the, the connection because it's come up so much in all of these conversations. I wanna kind of come to sort of, you know, present for a second, um, you know, tell me a little bit about Silo Wellness, um, you know, what, what the company is all about uh, and, and, and your role, how you kind of came to, to, to take, take up that role. Yeah. So Silo Wellness is a global health and wellness, um, health and psychedelic company. We operate here in Jamaica. We are publicly listed on the Canadian stock exchange and we're in the very hot psychedelic sector. I say very hot, um, somewhat tongue in cheek because while it's very fashionable today, um, the reality of it is it's, it's a, I consider a very fortunate space to be in, you know, we're on the leading edge as an industry of bringing to light very old, um, medicinal treatments. You know, they've been helping people for many, many years through indigenous application. 
And we now have the opportunity to sort of mix that, that traditional cultural usage with modern science, because at the end of the day, what, what, it, what it has the, the capacity to do is heal, you know, and heal mental health issues that we have been sweeping under the rug, particularly in the Caribbean for so very long. And in more advanced, you know, um, environments, more more developed, I should say, you know, we haven't swept it under the rug, but we've been treating it with drugs that don't work. You know, a lot there's 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 a very well accepted um, metric: the thirty percent of the pharmaceutical drugs that are used for mental health treatment don't work. Okay, that's accepted sort of by the scientific community, the medical community, um, and of course the patient community. But that doesn't include in that 70%, quote unquote, that it works for the people who are taking these powerful drugs, whether it's anxiety, PTSD, um, you know, other clinical, clinically diagnosed um, illnesses who are living as shadows of themselves. You know, I have, I, I've seen people who, when they're on their, their drugs, their, their medications, I should say, to, to help them are absolute vacuous shadows of who they are you know they're just like empty shells moving and that's 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 them being in a good state and so the fact that we have a very natural compound or natural compounds i should say that can give and treat people give them back their lives chikis that's how i look at it i, I look at it as this being allow people being able to allow people to be themselves more of themselves and that's why I'm so motivated by the work we do at Silo. Um, and I feel so honored to be a part of this, this, this industry and this, this organization, because that's what we look to do all, all, all day long. It's like, how many people can we help? How many people can we positively impact? Because that's the power of psychedelics, is to really transform um, some of the ways that we look at trauma. And so here's, here's the other component to it. You know, on the one hand, we are able to now come up with a safe, effective um, treatment for mental illness, okay? For all these different um, diagnoses that have not been properly treated in the past. But beyond that, you know, people who are suffering with anxiety, people who are suffering with sort of self-doubt, all these things that make us less than who we are, right? It also serves them because it helps them to reinterpret their traumas. We all have trauma. We all have mommy should have done this or daddy should have done that. And I'm not saying this to be, to be sort of poke fun at it. It's not, it's not fun, you know, but the reality of it is, and of course it goes on the whole continuum, you know, things from, from job shock losses or financial crises or, you know, things more substantive like sexual abuse or physical abuse. There's so many different forms of trauma. And unfortunately what's happened in society is we're all encouraged to hide it. We're all encouraged to pretend like everything is copacetic and super duper. Like if, like if being positive means in some way, shape or form, I'm repulsing the negative forces that I also have to contend with. And what psychedelics allow us to do, it allows the brain to do is almost to rewire how we interpret some of those things. So the trauma is not dissipated. It's still there. You know it happened, but your reaction to it has now changed. You know, because when you were maybe younger and traumatized, anytime somebody raises their voice in a loud way, it impacts you. So it could have nothing to do with you, but someone's being impacted because someone's shouting over there. Right. 
all of a sudden yeah. it doesn't impact you the same way. You can see what the shouting did to you, but you don't have this big force field around that particular aspect of your mind to where it, it, it actually, you know, um, impacts the way that you flow and function on an ongoing basis. So that's why I think it's such a powerful avenue that we're in, because I see us having an, an impact on helping people who have not gotten the kind of medical care that they need and should have been getting. But I also see us as being able to have help so many people to live much fuller experiences and lifestyles, because, you know, to me, it's all about us being the best version of who we are at every single step of the of way. How do we become, you know, and, and it goes back to what I was saying before about where the burden of potential was something I carried and maybe invented for myself. And really what potential is, is a very beautiful thing in that I just want to be the best version of me. You know what I mean? All the skills, all yeah. the talents, all the whatevers, I just want to live it. And so when we can remove this idea of judgment or self-doubt or self-hatred or whatever else, I mean, imagine that multiplied out on so many people and look at how it manifests today, the absence of that, you know, through social media and all these things that get to take a hold of society because we let it because so many people are grappling with that less than feeling for themselves that they allow these other things to come and impact them. To kind of see them. You know? Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's, um, it's really, you know, it's really interesting because, you know, one, we talked about, you know, mission. Um, so I love that because, you know, and I know you've done a really interesting partnership with, with the Marley family as well, you know, so, so you're actually connecting, you know, uh, 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 an, an institutionalized, you know, Caribbean brand that that is globally known and 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 revered, um, and you're able to kind of connect it. So there's kind of putting us on the global stage, but then there's also this dimension of, you know, helping people, which I which I love. And I think as we as we kind of wrap, I want to kind of to to touch on that in a, in another project you've done because you know you 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 started um, Canex as a kind of a cannabis conference. It's again, you know creating a global platform um, and 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 a big part of your thought process was you know wanting the Caribbean to be front and center in this industry and not necessarily have it be kind of taken over by by foreigners and so on um, and so you've built this 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 you know this this other dimension and one of the things that you know you talked about that struck me is um, that you know you wanted to do things without the asterisk. You wanted it to 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 be indistinguishable um, from the best things globally. Can you just talk a little bit about why that's you know so important to have those high standards? It, it probably connects to some of the stuff you said about your early upbringing and the accountability. But I'm not gonna hear from you because I think that's probably a really great place to kind of you know to kind of wrap. No, I mean, Chica, like, look, I mean, you know, life is black and white more than we think it is. You know what I mean? We like to say it's not black and white, but you, it, it, it really is um, in many, many, many ways, not all for sure. And so from that perspective, it's like it's either really it's either good or it's not. And if it's not good, it doesn't mean it's bad. It means we need to keep working at it to get it to where we find that standard of what good is. Good could mean excellent. Good could mean satisfactory. Good could be whatever you define it to be. You know, for me, I've always said, if I'm doing something, I want to do it to the highest global standard. I don't want the asterisks. I don't want it to be good considering. I don't want it to be, a, you know, a good magazine considering it's from the Caribbean. 
I don't want it to be, you know what I mean, good considering the resources they have available. It's either it's good or it's not. And so, you know, that's the sort of relentless um, black and white kind of perspective that I think we do need to have in our businesses. You know, we do need to have in our approaches because that's where that's where the little margins on each little thing that we do have a massive impact in terms of what you stand for, what your brand is recognized for. You know, you're building a business. What is it? What's behind the business? You know, what are your standards? You know, someone answering the phone. Hey, how you doing? Versus how are you? Thank you for calling. You know, have a great day. You know, little, little things make such a big difference. And it's when you have all the little things around a mission. You know, we talk about your objective. We talk about your mission. We talk about, um, you know, I, you know, the word that I, unfortunately for me, because I'm not one who, when I hear something, usually when I, when I have an idea, or I hear something over and over and over, I start to move on to the next idea. But the word that I cannot, you know, even become, though it's become a little bit faddish um, and, and misuse at times is authenticity. You know, the authenticity of why you're doing what you're doing has to permeate throughout your business. And so when we talk about silo wellness with respect to Marley One, with respect to plant medicine, you know, with respect to, you know, what Bob Marley stood for in terms of, you know, that, that idea of we're one, one love, right? We're one people. We're actually one earth. That's what we've, I've come to recognize in this, in this process. And that's what he's talking about. The earth has the, the, the power, the tools to heal itself if we would just open our eyes and understand that. You know, and so with Canix, which you, which you just, you know, why did I start Canix? I started Canix because, you know, I remember reading, I was very peripheral about the whole cannabis industry. It's only from all the different journals and different things I read, I was reading that I saw this industry was coming up. Me, I was never into cannabis, you know what I mean? Or ganja, weed or whatever you call it. Why? Because my mom told me I could be anything I want to be in, the, in this world. And I said, okay. If they ask me any hard questions, I have to be able to answer them honestly. So I'm not, I'm not going to do anything that I don't want to answer in the affirmative at that particular time, if I so choose. And, but I've never had a problem with people using it. Okay. But when I saw it coming along as an industry, the thing that really sat for me was I remember one day reading in the Wall Street Journal that Peter Thiel had put $12 million, I think it was $12 million at the time, into cannabis. And it struck me because, you know, here's Peter Thiel, one of the most seasoned and well-funded, you know, venture capitalists out there. This is like a rounding error. This is like a charitable contribution that's not really worthy of a headline, right? But at the same time, Jamaica had just decriminalized and introduced the laws that would govern, you know, regulate the industry here. And they had a town hall that was on the news. And, you know, it had devolved into like bickering and arguing and all, all because of fear, all because of this idea that, you know, Canadians and foreigners are going to come in and take over the industry and it's going to leave the Rasta man out and leave the, you know, the local from being a part of the industry. And I said, Jesus, you know, here we are. The Wall Street Journal has this article about cannabis. You know, we as Caribbean people, it just doesn't look good. You know, it doesn't look like it's, it's progressive. And, you know, it just took me back to the steel pan in Trinidad, you know, and I remember being in, you know, being in the island and, and reading about the outrage and the government needs to do something when people discovered that Japan had trademarked it. Right. And I remember thinking like, well, we sat on our hands, you know what I mean? And this happened. 
So here was cannabis that should really have a real big role for Jamaica. This is even before I truly understood the industry and its potential. And, you know, what could I do as a Caribbean person? Because I've always considered myself, first and foremost, a Caribbean person, right? Um, yeah. And that's where the idea of sort of getting people from across the world who are ready in the industry to come and speak with people locally who want to be in the industry or who want to move from the illegal to the legal or those who are now considering investing, how do I get all those people in a room where there can be a cross-pollination of, of, of ideas, there could be education, there could be the sort of foundational blocks for potential collaboration? Um, and that's where Canix was born, really, from that, that desire to just connect people. And then over time, you know, we evolved it into a business. You know, I really looked at it and said, well, this is a really nice project to do because it came from a good place of intention. But can I kick this on into becoming a viable business now as opposed to something I just felt personally needed to be done? Nobody else was doing it, so let me do it. And that's how the business evolved into now, you know, we have it every year, but we also have these additional events in, in different cities around the world um, to really take the conversation and make people understand what the opportunity is around cannabis. Yeah, I, I love that because I think there's so many things that listeners can take away from that, right? You know, I, I always remember the first big conference that, um, you know, my company held or six people, I got them around the room. I said, hey, we're going to do a conference on digital marketing in the Caribbean um, and we're going to do it in three months. And they looked at me like, uh, what? Um, and then we had Facebook and we had and we did this thing called the Caribbean Digital Expo. And, um, you know, and then the Facebook, I had my friend who had worked with at Microsoft and had gone on to Facebook. And, you know, in her keynote, she said, you know, one of the things that's common for us at the company is we just say start by starting. Um, and by starting something, you know, amazing things can happen. You may not know exactly where it's going to go. So I hear those elements of evolution, but I also hear that desire to, you know, think with a pan-Caribbean lens, which is, I think is super important, and and also think about connection, which is amazing. So, you know, I, I, I want to kind of wrap because there's been so many, you know, super things that, you know, you've talked about and so really, so many really interesting themes, Douglas, and okay, can I, for the listeners out there. Yeah. I want to interrupt you to add one more thing that I think is very important. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, please do. And, and this is where I think my moving around so much has helped me as well as my growth as an individual and becoming a little bit more aware, self-aware, you know, especially in the Caribbean, especially in, in Trinidad and, and, you know, Island by Island, right. We have to let go of this, this, this fear of being judged, you know, it, it's too prevalent. And I, and I think there are too many talented people who want to do more and want to do better, but they get so paralyzed by this idea of their, you know, their their family or their coworkers or their friends laughing at them if they don't if it doesn't work out, and it's it, it's it's a ridiculous it's a ridiculous conundrum, you know. And why I say ridiculous is because, you know, again on the on the on the path of ups and downs, you know, I remember at one point in a particular down, looking around and you know there, there are people saying things, you know, and I'm like, why is that person seems to be so hell bent on saying things? And the remarkable thing about it, and if you listen, the universe will always give you so much perspective. It was a person that helped so much, you know, in, 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 in quiet alleyways, if you will, of life that they had no idea about how much I'd helped and vouched for this person. 
And there they were having all these things to say. And in that moment, I said, you know, it made me feel worse, right? Because you're like, I helped this person. Why are they saying bad things about me? But what it gave me is perspective. And the perspective that I was left with is this. I'm only interested in commentary and feedback from people that I want to grow into. Okay? Some people who are just my buddies or, or not or whatever, their feedback doesn't really matter. I'm, I'm okay with input. I'm okay with constructive criticism. But as far as judgmental type calls, unless you're where I'm trying to get to, it really doesn't matter what you have to say. You know, I have to be strong enough in my convictions and that I can apply myself that I'm willing to say it's okay if you don't like me. It's really okay if you don't like me, you know, and, and, and that's one of the things that I lost many years of, of listening and learning from my father. He always used to say, life is not a popularity contest. You know, it's much more important. He said this to me, Douglas, it's much more important to be respected than it is to be liked. And, you know, as I get, as I've gotten older and I've gotten a little bit more comfortable with myself, that's one of the things that I think. I wish I had listened to earlier in my life, you know, and that's one of the things that I want to say and share with anybody who's contemplating entrepreneurism, who's in it, you know, who's in a corporate job that they hate and they want to go and do something different is start, you know, to your, and that's why I jumped in is start, do it. Yeah. Because the lessons and the learnings are going to be so rich and robust that you're only going to grow from it. And I think personally, that's the most important thing on this journey of life is growth. I always want to grow. Yeah. You know, if I'm stagnant, I'm, bo- I, you know, I'm not, I'm not happy. I always am pursuing knowledge, growth, challenge, maybe sometimes too much, but I go for it. You know what I mean? And that's what I encourage people to do, to do a little bit more. Yeah. No, I, 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 I understand. I understand that mindset and it's, uh, and, and sometimes we have to save ourselves from ourselves, but it is, it is the, foundation of achieving anything is taking a step so so i love that well you know douglas i want to say that you know across the conversation we've talked about you know these themes of just kind of getting going we've talked about themes of you know not getting caught up in what people say and think and being afraid to fail we've we've talked about the importance of taking things as learning opportunities not failures um and how important it is to be adaptable and to you know, and to have that sense of ambition and and that desire to think to think big, but again, you know, very common kind of theme throughout has also been the importance of mission. And so, you know, I think this has been an amazing conversation. I want to thank you for the time that you spent. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. I know our listeners will as well. So, thank you, Douglas Gordon, for for your time today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Make sure you know the next time an episode of Uptick drops by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. And remember, share Uptick with a friend. Now, on behalf of Caribbean Ideas, this is Chike Farrell signing off. And remember, keep on ticking up.